0: Okay, good evening everybody, nice to be joining us on this increasingly chilly uh, Thursday evening. So this week's parsha is uh parsha at uh, Bahabuch it's going to take us to the end of Safer Sefer Vayikra and we've got a couple of uh, interesting pieces for us this evening, some of them um, you might have heard before, some of them a little bit uh, uh, more uh, Musadik, some of them a little bit more Pshat. But uh, let's go with them. So the, the Pasha opens up and it talks about the laws of Shemitah, which is in essence the ideas of uh, the sabbatical year, that every year you've got to, you've got to plow, plant, you've got to sow your seeds, and uh, in the seventh year you've got to allow the land to lie fallow. So this is something that Adah Yomazeh, they still do to this today in Israel. It's a question whether it's done by law or done by custom. But nevertheless, in the seventh year, the Shemitah year, becomes quite difficult um, to obtain various uh, fruits and vegetables and the like. Um, but uh, the, the way that the, the parasha opens up is, So he says you're going to count seven year cycles of seven years each, and then you'll get to the 50th year, which is the Jubilee year. And the Jubilee year is going to be, uh, as the, the, the concept of Jubilee year being that there would be for I would declare freedom across the land, all the slaves would go free, all land would return to its original owners and the like. So the first piece for this evening is a, is a book called the Kliakar. The Kliakar was the chief rabbi of Prague um, immediately after the Maharal, if I'm not mistaken. So we're talking 1700s. And here's a piece over here explaining, it goes, you should count seven years, seven times and we get to 40 to the 50th year and then. So he looks at this whole situation in a sort of Musadika way. And he says as follows. uh, So let me just get to the part, the interesting part. Um, I'll go to the underline. So you should understand that in a person's life, so every time we go to a funeral, unfortunately, one of the the words we read of Tihilim is the days of a... The years of a man, or 70 years, or by reason of strength, 80. And the concept of a 70-year life was something that throughout uh, biblical terminology, biblical times, it was considered uh, 70 years was uh, the time limit of an individual. We bless people, 120, but 70 was considered the, the amount of time that a person lives on average. It says, but understand that of those 70 years, the first 20 years don't really count. So even though we like to say that at the Bar Mitzvah, you know, the the responsibilities of parents to child are now exonerated and now the child is responsible for themselves. Reality is, the Gemara says that up until the age of 20, um, the child doesn't have complete spiritual uh, uh, responsibility on their shoulders. That is understood that there's still a certain maturation process taking place. And uh, one is still in a very developmental stage up until the age of 20. So we see uh, if you open up the beginning of Parshat Chayyei Sarah, where it says that Sarah was 100 years and 20 years and 7 years. So it says that when she was 100, she was like 20 with regards to sin. That's the way the Rashi explains it. So why 20? So this is where this idea comes. that At the age of 20, so uh, you're not really held completely accountable. From the point 20, it's now you're on your own. So it says, so you take the 70 and you minus the 20, means you've got 50 years left. So he explains this. That's why it says you should count for yourself. If you count every year, and you focus on it, and you make sure that you maximize it, and you focus it on non-worldly endeavors, on spiritual endeavors, on personal growth endeavors, then the years will be for you. So again, the simple reading is, count for yourselves seven years times seven and you get to 49 and you'll come to the 50th year so the 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 clear car is saying that what it's saying count for you is that those 50 years you've got left you should count them make them count don't just you go through it like it's like so often one of the things that scares me now like Yehuda is doing history and he has to remember what happened in uh, this year and what happened in that year i mean i can tell you i went to uh, i went to america can I tell you if it was in 2012, 2013, 2016, all the years sort of blend in to one another. I've been in the Shua, Like I, I can't remember. I've been in the, sh- in the community for 15 years. For the laugh of me, if you tell, like when did something happen, I'm like, Jesus oh, man, 29. What, what happened in 2009? Unless you had a, a birth or a marriage or something massive happened in 2009, the are oh, you can't remember anything from 2009. So he's saying, he said, sheva shanim. You should count for yourself and then a shanim. Then they will belong to you. Then you will own your years. So when you own your time as opposed to your time owning you, that is, that's the key that he brings over here. So it's a, it's a, it's a schmoozy vote, but I think it's a, it's a powerful idea. The, um, so it says, uh, I'm just trying to think where I saw. He said, he came with, uh, oh, come back to me. There's another phrase, a rabbinic phrase, talking about, uh, ah, he said he had arichat yamim. Ah, so it was a story that was was told to me about a particular guy who was talking about his father who died at a reasonably young age. And he was saying to his his friend, he had arichat yamim. So arichat yamim um, usually translated as have a long life. So he said he had arichat yamim, which means he has long days. So his friend said to him, he says, but your father didn't have arichat yamim. He died very young man. He said, I didn't say he had arichat shanim. I said he had arichat yamim. He didn't have long years, but he had long days. His days were all very incredibly fruitful. So, so you can, some people can manage to shove into 20, 30 years, but other of us can't manage to shove into 90. And that's what he's talking about over here. And that's the hint of the Shemitah. All right." Alright, next piece for this evening is talking about what is uh, Shemitah. So if I were to say to you, why does, why does Hashem command us that in the seventh year, you have to have a Shemitah year? So, say, so if you want to look at it from a rational point of view, it's the idea that if you, um, if you, if you uh, plant and you grow, eventually the earth is going to get tired, it's going to lose its resources, so you need to give it a sabbatical. The whole concept of sabbatical is rest. So the Torah says this is source number two let me just uh, make sure source number two over here uh, so it says it's a shabbat Lashem. and we read this one of the um one of the zmirot one of the songs that we read on sing on shabbat is also Shabbat it's a shabbat Lashem. so if i said to you what is the purpose of shabbat uh, regular uh, tomorrow, not Shabbat. So he says it's for uh, for us to to rest. So he says no, it's a Shabbat Lashem, It's a Shabbat for Hashem. So the Netziv, the Netziv was the Rosh Shivan in Volosian, and he says over here in source number three, Shabbat Lashem lo bishevu tovat hakar k'ot la nuach pa mechad b'sheva shanim, ilo bishevu dvar Hashem berutzonu. Do not misconstrue. The idea, now this could be understood in one of two ways. Do not misconstrue the idea that the purpose of a sabbatical is for you to rest. That is not the purpose. Either, and take one, we could say that it's for Hashem. So Hashem said so, and that's why we do it. Why do So why do we do Brit Milah answer? Hashem says so. End of story. It's a, for Hashem. Hashem says so. You build my relationship with Hashem. It's whatever the case might be. I have to have trust in Hashem that He'll provide for me in the, uh, in the year that I'm not working. So that all well and good. But there's no um, there's no personal benefit from it. That's one way of understanding. The other way of understanding, it, I think, is is a bit more profound. And that is... It's for Hashem, in as much as it is for me to build that relationship with Hashem. That what is the the year? What is a year of rest? It's not to relax. It is to be able to refocus and to be able to channel our energies into more more spiritual pursuits rather than into earthly pursuits. So this idea is something that, even though we don't have a shmita, I ask you the following. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? So, so, my experience has been that most people would waste it, not use it productively. And the reason I say that is if you compare the lives we live today compared to the lives of a couple of hundred years ago. We have water literally on tap. We have electricity um, we have machines that do the vast majority of the work, and we have so much more time on our hands than we've ever had before, yet we have, and, and as a result, we've had to invent things to do with that time. So once upon a time, we, if you had to spare time, you know what a luxury, the concept of, of free time was an absolute luxury. Now we say, what on earth am I gonna do with my free time? So what we need to do is in, invent things. So that's what's called leisure. So, entertainment and leisure have come to full free time. So, if I gave you an extra hour of the day, what would it be useful? Would it be useful just more another hour of Netflix? So, if that's what it is, so chavah, what's the, what Hashem needs uh, the extra hour in the day so you can watch an extra hour of Netflix? The whole concept of relaxation of Hashem giving us time is to be able to dedicate it to constructive initiatives and ventures that we couldn't do because we're too busy. So, I, I heard this once in a shiro, but eighteen, nineteen, years, what? Yeah, about 18 years ago, when Tamar just got, and I got, just got married. And um, the Rav, Rav Ari Khan, he spoke at our Cholom Aid, uh, program. So he said, he, he quoted um, "Fiddle on the Roof. He said in the song, if I was a rich man, what would be the best part of being a rich man? I don't know how well you guys know the, the song. But what is the best part of being a rich man? Is you will have the time to sit and open up all the books and to be able to learn. And, and and that's I think what Shabbat Lashem means, a year where we're not working is a year that is an unbelievable opportunity to develop, you know, to to be able to develop greatness, to be able to do things that we couldn't do before. It's interesting as as Corona lockdown went in, one of the things, they call it the productive things that the, a couple of productive things that I saw come out of it. Number one. The Bunnings DIY section completely sold out. All of a sudden, people were doing home improvements that they never had time to do. But now they've got time, so they've been doing it. But something was even more interesting. So I I, I went riding the other day and I snapped my chain. So ordinarily, you go up to the bike shop and you wait 10 minutes and he fixes your chain. I went to the bike shop it took him five days to fix it. He said he's never had so much work in his life. He's never been busier before. So everyone, all of a sudden, has taken their bikes out of the sheds and everyone's riding bikes. Because no one can do anything. So... Okay, that's, that's something positive that's come out of it. But that's the idea over here of it's a Shabbat Lashem that that year is supposed to be dedicated to Hashem to building up spiritual, uh, spiritual uh, productivity initiatives. All right. Carrying on, we are now in source number four. So a large part of Sefer, uh, of Pasha Bahar is going to talk about um, people hitting hard times. So the weekday um, halachas that I've been talking about have been going through the laws of interest which I learned in this week's parasha the prohibition of charging interest. And uh, the whole idea behind that is that when you see somebody who's uh, down in their luck, they're having a hard time, so you've got to be able to uh, help them out. You can't uh, turn your back on them. So one of the mitzvahs that come out is lotonu. It says, verse, uh, number four here, So you should not oppress... Um, any member of your people, and you should fear Hashem, your God, Kiyani Hashem. So the word Lotonu is usually understood in a uh, financial context, and it refers to um, financial abuse, either by ripping somebody off or taking advantage of somebody, but that is Lotonu means. But uh, Rashi understands it over here, in, in the just, uh, sorry, just, I'm getting good with these pens and pencils. Lotonu ishitami to. The word tonu does not mean here only to rip off, but to tonu means to oppress. So it says, what is the oppression here? This is not financial oppression. This is onat dvarim, is verbal oppression. You should not upset people, and you should not give people bad advice. The anatosh do not give people advice that is in the benefit of the advisor rather than the advisee so the one element has a, a general financial uh, prohibition so if I'm giving you advice that I know is not good for you but it's good for me so that's a financial one but on the first one the Torah prohibition so um, you know it's like I like I like you know, men do things differently, like you know, like this. Women are a little bit more. Um, uh, well, I, I love that you don't mind wearing anything when you go out, you don't care what people think. Yeah, that sort of uh, comment. Yeah, I tell you, uh, one of the greatest insults, it's always meant as a compliment. You yeah. know, you've lost so much weight, you know, which is an inference of saying you used to be huge. And I noticed that you were huge. And I thought to myself, geez, you're huge. And now you're not huge anymore. Now, is that a compliment or an insult? So most people take it as a compliment, but it can be incredibly insulting. Yes. And, and, and the ideas of harm that we can cause with words, we've got to be so careful, even if our intent or not, even if our intent is really sincere and honest and, and, and and pleasant, we just got to be careful with what we say. Um, yeah one of the, the Onatvarim, best case of Onatvarim. Um uh, so when you do has anyone put that foot in your mouth before? Um how about this one? So what do you do for a living? Actually I'm unemployed. Are you married? Do you speak so do you have a, are you married with kids? No, I'm still single. How many kids do you have? No, we can't have children. I mean these this is onatvarim. These are things where, uh, innocent questions, you're sitting at, a, at a, a dinner party, you see a person who's in their, I don't know, in their 40s, 50s, whatever the case might be, you say, so, Sainu, what do you do for a living? Like it could be the most painful, hurtful question in the world. You're not intending it to be, but that's what Onatvarim is. And this idea, lot Lord, you've got to be so, so careful with your language that you don't hurt people, whether you intend to or not. If you intend to, it's all the more so worse. But it says over here, Tomau. Rashi continues. And if you want to suggest, So who knows if I, like when I gave this guy bad advice, who knows that um, that, uh, that, that was my intent. That's why the end of the verse, of here says, Why does it say that you should fear Hashem your God? It says, the person that you're taking advantage of, the person that um, you're hurting, maybe they, they are unaware of the fact that you, that was your intent. But I, Hashem, know. So this is the idea that um, intention and motives are often going to be judged by Hashem, even if we can get away with it. So we, can, we often make comments um, about others uh, that are, are, are considered, uh, you know, when people talk, it's like, why did you say this? I was, I'm i sorry, I didn't mean to insult you, offend you. And Hashem knows whether you did or you didn't. Okay. All right, source number five. So, how um, are we doing time-wise? was? right, source number five. So, if you've got to stop working, so I just need a bit of a drink. All right. So, the idea is you've got to work for six years, and the seventh year, you've got to stop working. So, your good question would be, what on earth am I going to eat Either in the 7th year, but more so, what am I going to eat in the 8th year? Fine, in the 7th year I'll be able to eat that from the 6th year. So the Torah says, And should you ask, what on earth am I going to eat in the 7th year? We haven't planted and reaped our produce. Don't worry. I will pass my bracha on in the 6th year. And I will make sure that there's enough crop for three years. So in year, so you say, when, uh, when, you say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? It says, don't worry, in the sixth year, I'll make sure that there's enough crop there for the sixth year, the seventh year, and the eighth year. So you're, you're, it'll be a bumper crop. Now, I remember in my, in my, first, uh, my first day of yeshiva. We had a shir and it was uh, the title of the shir was things only the author could know and the question is if if this book was a man-written book how on earth do you put in a put in a mitzvah like this so i'm, I'm telling you in the seventh year you can't plant anything and you say oh well we're going to eat so say don't worry i know it'll be tough but gather up as much as you can and if you guys are do well in the shemitah year in the seventh year um, and you keep it properly, in the eighth year, I'll give you a bumper crop, and I'll reward you. And then, th- that's how a man would write it. Because you know what happened. come the eighth year, and you don't get a bumper crop. So the so the, the, whoever wrote the Torah would say, oh, well, you didn't do it properly, and you weren't uh, fearful enough, or I'm still testing you. Easy. But here God comes and says, don't worry, before that year, I'm going to give you three years worth of bumper crop. So how on earth could... You know, how long would the Torah last? If we got the laws of Shemitah, how long would the Torah last if it came and said, all right, in, in the seventh year, you're going to go a So it's very simple. Come the sixth year, if we don't get a three-year bumper crop, we don't, we don't keep Shemitah next year. It would last six years, the Torah. and in the seventh year, it would all be ois. So that was the shir. I thought, I thought it was a very good shir at the time. I still think it's a good shir. I don't have a good old answer to refute that. But the Kliyakar, this is the same guy we saw at the beginning. <coughs> I'm going to read this. I'll speak it outside. I think it's quite profound. When the Torah comes and says, when people are panicking, and they say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? When are they asking that question? Like, just, just think about it. When are they asking that question? So, you would have thought, just like, you know, in the, just beforehand. So, look how the Torah ends. Don't worry, because I will command in the sixth year that there will be a triple crop. Which means that if I'm going to do it in the future, it means that we are somewhere between years one and five. Means that we're far away from the time that this is a relevant question. So if I say to you, in the year 2030, um, there's going to be a terrible famine. Would you panic now? You might prepare now, whatever the case might be. It's a good question. But, but there's a certain, he picks up on a certain panic within the pasuk. And he says this idea is that the, the, the idea of worry, and that's what he's addressing. He says that the, the Torah is addressing over here that when something, I mean, uh, uh, Leo Buscaglia, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Leo Buscaglia, who was, uh, was an Italian-American uh, psychologist who all his books were on love. If you've got some time, Google him, watch him on YouTube. he be one of the best speakers you'd ever hear. Leo Buscaglia. And, uh, talks about the fact, he says, you know, 90, 90% of that which we worry never materializes. But it absorbs all of our time and all of our experience. I mean, over, think of how much we worried over the last few months about Corona. Not talking about the precautions we've taken and the, uh, uh, the things we've done in order to protect ourselves and others. I'm talking about the worrying. What's going to be? What's going to happen? Worrying doesn't help. You know, that, that's the thing. Is worrying is very unconstructive. So you, if, if there's something you're concerned about, do it. If you're not concerned about it, don't do it. But to worry about it doesn't help at all. And so over here, I was talking about the fact that you have a group of people that are worrying about something that's going to happen many years in the future, and it paralyzes them in the present. And I think often we, are, we struggle ourselves of being paralyzed not by what is happening, but rather by what might happen. Okay. Source number seven, and I, 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 this is, a, I think, a beautiful, beautiful idea. And you would have heard me quote this Gomorrah before. So one of the things that it comes in the parasha is when you have to help your fellow, fellow man by giving him a, a loan, it says, imach," And your brother should live with you. So if I were to ask you the following question, so the, the famous pasuk that we quoted a few weeks ago in the parasha, which is, You have to love your neighbor like you love yourself. So what is the, what's the actual mitzvah there? So most people hear the first part of the Pasuk rather than the second part. So the first part of the Pasuk is you should love your neighbor. But the second part is like you love yourself. So there's an assumption. What happens if you don't love yourself? So if you really don't love yourself, so how are you going to love your neighbor? You have to love yourself first. And once you love yourself, now you've got to love your neighbor in the same way. But you've got to love yourself. So it's not love your neighbor instead of yourself. It's love your neighbor as you do love yourself. So this idea of self-love is, is crucially important. So the same thing happens over here. You have to uh, support your friend or your brother with you. But you yourself have to be supported. So for you to become destitute. So this is why the, the halachas, even though charity is an important mitzvah within the Torah, there is a, we, we try to put a, a minimum amount of giving charity, but there's also a maximum amount. Because what, you've got to give all the money away and now you're going to need support. So what good is that? You've got to help others with you. So the idea is that people have to, um, <coughs> you have to help people, but you've got to t- take care of yourself first. So fam, uh, charity starts at home or your, uh, your first, or your tzedakah goes. So if someone comes to me and says, you know, someone's collecting, but I have to support. I've got elderly parents that I'm supporting. I've got a sibling who's struggling. I've got kids that are struggling. That's That's tzedakah. That's all tzedakah, assuming we're not buying Ferraris and the like, but assuming that we, we are paying rent and uh, medical supplies and the like, education. So that's absolutely tzedakah. And it's based on this concept of chayay, v'chay achicha imach, with you. But the Gemara takes it a different uh, line. And it's this Gemara on, on uh, source number seven. The two guys walking along the way. And one of them has a flask of water. If both of them drink from it, mate both They will both die. If one of them drinks from it, he will arrive to civilization. So what should they do? Should they share the water and both die? Or should the one who has the water, he should drink it and let the other one die? So Darash ben Putura. So there's this gentleman named, this Rov named Ben Putura. To best of my knowledge, this is the only place in the entire Talmud that his name features. He says, "Mutav Better they should both drink together and both die. Rather than you should sit and watch the die, the death of your friend. So that's the one opinion. How can you allow him to die? So rather, you should go down together, maybe some miracle will happen, whatever. The, but you have, to, you have to do it together. And Rabbi Akiva came and said, no. So from our Parsha, your brother will live with you. Your life comes first before your friend's life. Now that does not mean that you can steal everybody's water to save your own life. It means that if I've got water and my friend doesn't, I've got to keep the water and drink it. Hashem, for some reason, uh, by providence, I have the water, so I need to drink the water, and uh, and he has to die. Okay. So there's a beautiful, uh, there's a, a little, uh, this little block over here is quoting a book called the Chidushé Harim. Chidushé Harim was the Gerar Rebbe, one of the Gerer Rebbe's. And he says, if I were to tell you uh, my life or his life, do we both die or do I die? And Rabbi Akiva says, you've got to keep it for yourself. So what does it tell us about Rabbi Akiva? So it can tell you a lot of things about Rabbi Akiva. But one of the interesting things is you have to have a certain la- level of uh, credibility in the bank. You have to be a kind of personality before people will listen to you in these harsh, uh, harsh uh, comments. So he says as follows. And I'm just reading in this little block here. Only Rabbi Akiva could have ever taught us this law, that your life comes first. You know why? Because there's a Gemara that comes and talks about Rabbi Akiva. When they're taking him out, the Romans caught him for teaching Torah in public, which was illegal at the time. And took him out and they started using metal combs to rake his flesh off his body, to comb his flesh off his body. And as he was doing it, he was, he was laughing. And all his students were crying. And they said to him, Rebbe, even now you're laughing. How is this possible? So he says, All my life I've said you must in the Shema, you should love Hashem your God with all your heart and all your soul. And the Gemara comes and says, With all your soul, even if Hashem takes your soul. And now the opportunity to give up my life has come. I shouldn't be happy. And that's why I'm smiling. So he says, Only a person who looks at that, That he's prepared to give up his life for Torah when the time comes is the kind of person that can come and tell you, uh, you drink the water. You don't give it to your friend. This is not a matter of uh, personal self-interest that you have two selfish individuals both trying to survive on the back of their brother. He has an individual who's happy to give up his life when the time comes. But the halacha over here is that you do not forfeit your life. At this point in time, you do not forfeit it. You have to save preserve your life even if it means at the cost of your friend all right uh, the last point for this evening um, has a certain level of a uh, time relevance so the second parasha um, of the is uh B'chukotai. and B'chukotai is called the has got the curses in it, two places in the Torah where we read about terrible curses that are coming going to come on Bnei Israel. and uh, one of the curses talks about um, how desolate the land will be left and how we will be exiled from the land and it is going to be awful. So in, 19, in 1867, so Mark Twain went, he was uh, before, I think this is before uh, Huckleberry Finn and the like. But Mark Twain was a, um, a journalist and he went on tour through the Middle East. And uh, this is a, a little snippet of something he wrote regarding his traversing through the land of Israel. Of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. The hills are barren, they are dull of color, they are unpicturesque in shape. The valleys are unsightly deserts, fringed with a feeble vegetation. That has an expression about it, being, uh, about it of being sorrowful and despondent. I would like much to see the fringes of the Jordan in springtime and Shem, Estelon, Ayalon, and the borders of Galilee. But even these spots would seem mere toy gardens set in wide intervals in the waste of de- limitless desolation. The land of Israel was not only an unhospitable, but an unsightly place to visit. And that is in 1867. Now, in, in Pasha Dvarim, so there are two sets of curses in the Torah. One is Pasha Pachukotanaz in, in, in Dvarim, Pasha Kitavot. And it says as follows. In later generations they'll ask. The children of succeeding and foreigners who come from distant lands. And see the plagues and diseases that the Lord has inflicted upon the land. All its soil devastated by sulfur and salt beyond sowing and producing. No grass growing in it. Just like the upheaval of Sodom and Gomorrah. Which the Lord overthrew in his fierce anger. And all the nations will ask. Why did the Lord do thus to this land? Why for that awful wrath? So you see in Sefer Dvarim, this prediction that you guys are going to be kicked out of the land. And it's not that you're just going to be kicked out of the land, but when are you kicked out of the land, the land is going to become an absolute barren wasteland. And no one is going to be able to live there. So much so that when people look at it, they're going to say, what on earth happened here? Well, like, why, what did, why did God get so angry with that? I mean, as you read this, and you read Mark Twain, and he said, Mark Twain is bringing a prophecy from P- Pasha ki As I say, because they forsook the covenant that the Lord, the God uh, gave with them and freed them from the land of Egypt, and they turned to worship other gods that they didn't know, and so God got angry with them and brought the, all the curses written in this book, and Hashem uprooted them from their soil in, uh, in anger, fearing great wrath, and cast them to another land, as is still the case. Now, one of the, one of the magnificent, um, ex- let me say this slightly differently. When the Torah presents a prophecy, both positive and negative, and things that are seemingly so unsightly and uh, unexpected come true, it fills us with a certain level of, of, of hope, not only in the fact that the Torah itself is true, but that the, that the, the end is, needn't be so bleak. So if you read over here the Ramban, at the bottom, I'll just read it outside. So that's in our parsha. It says, mm-hmm. And that which the Torah says in our parsha that when you're going to get to the land, it's going to be completely desolate. Your enemies are going to come. It says, You should know that this is actually good news. That the land is going to be completely barren is good news. Throughout our, our terrible diaspora, the land will never accept and embrace those of our enemies that come to live in it. And You should know that this is a big promise that Hashem has made for us. People will come through the land. They will see nothing more desolate and empty than our home. And they will be amazed by it. They've tried. People have come. Nations have come. And no one can make Eretz Yisrael home. That's the bracha. When we get kicked out the land of Israel will die. To take it a bit further, so the and Brachot comes and talks about it, and Rav Cook talks about it, it says, and when B'nai Israel come back, then it will all start to flourish again. That will make the desert bloom. We will bring life back to the hilltops, and the place that saw no life for 2,000 years of any significance is now has close to 7 million uh, Israelis living there, flourishing economies, water is flowing. Israel is the only country in the world that I think over 90% of its water comes from desalination plants. It is a country that is truly a miracle in the 20th century and the miracle throughout human history. And that is the, me- the, the message of, uh, of the opposite of these curses. When we kicked out of the land, the land will die. And says Ramban, that's a good thing. Because no one else will be able to live there. And when we come back, it will be brought back to life. So, to, to that end, we are uh, celebrating this Thursday evening, a week from tonight, it won't be sure next week for this reason, is, uh, it's Yom 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 So, Yom HaAtzmaut, we celebrate the, the return of a 2000 years of no Jewish rule to a return of Jewish autonomy in the land of Israel. And uh, on Thursday night we will celebrate the return of Yerushalayim. That all of a sudden that uh, Yerushalayim that was under I think eighteen or nineteen conquests. It's uh, it's had eighteen or nineteen different um, armies that have marched into Yerushalayim. The last one being the paratroopers in nineteen sixty seven. And the land is coming back to life. It's mamish tchiyat For people who say that it's the resurrection of the dead. You take a people that walked out of the gas chambers of Auschwitz, built a state that is now the, the, the iron envy of countries around the world, a real bastion of uh, democracy in a, in a very unhospitable place that not only is bringing technology to the world, but is bringing life to a land that was dead for so long. And so to that end, wish you all good Shabbos. I hope you have a, a good Shabbat. And uh, look forward to hopefully seeing you here in the new week. Please, God, over the next few weeks, we'll be getting back to Shul uh, in some form or another. Not exactly sure who and how, but uh, please, God, that's the plan. And I wish you Shabbat Shalom.